0: You're listening to Dirty Feet, a podcast from No More Radio. Vous écoutez le podcast Dirty Feet sur les ondes de No More Radio. Hosted by... Animé par... Alison Burns... J.D. Papillon... Et Stéphanie Morin-Robart. Stay
1: tuned. We're going to move you.
2: This week on the podcast, once again, we're joined by guest host... Linnea Giviazda, and I'm going to let her take it away.
3: So we are here this afternoon sitting in a um, beautiful sunny day here in Centennial Square in Victoria, British Columbia, um, and we're sitting down to uh, speak with Linda Reno, who is a pillar of the Victoria dance community and has been for many years. She opened uh, Reno Dance, a dance school in Victoria here in 1979 um and uh, has worked with various artists around around the world dance artists and um and we're very privileged and honored to have the opportunity to sit down with with you today linda so thank you so much for being here
1: it's fun it's it's fun to have a little montreal time again
3: (laughs) yeah um, so you have seen a, a real uh, progression and change in the dance community in Victoria, and you were really a, a part of that, being here for for so long with Rayno Dance. Um, so what was it like, what was the climate that you opened Rayno Dance into in 1979?
1: Well, interestingly, I came here from... When I left Montreal, I went to Texas for a year, and then Oregon for a year, and then moved here, because I became a single mom. And I arrived here thinking, I'd never been to Victoria, thinking, what is going to happen here? And bumped into my old dance partner, Constantine Darling. From our Montreal days, we had a company in Montreal. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, what are you doing here? And we said, okay, well, let's start another company. So we did. Um, we just started what we had done in Montreal here. And there was nothing here. There was Arthur Murray and Ballet Schools for Children.
3: Yeah. And so you created a, a school for adults?
1: No. We started a company that we called Spectrum Dance Circus. And it was uh, classes and performance. And we did concerts in Centennial Square and in art galleries and... Um, it was still a bit of the happening of the late 70s where you did happenings in various places. Mm-hmm. Interesting how that s- recycles 20 years later. Yeah. There's pop-up dance concerts. Well, we were kind of doing them then. And so Spectrum did a bunch of concerts over the over a few years. And then we, did, we discovered that I was better at teaching beginners. He was better at teaching adults. And we just kind of, I just started my school. It just sort of morphed into that. He, he kept going in the performance and went more into the martial arts
3: world. And um, so I just began that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Many of our listeners are, are from Montreal, since this is a Montreal-based uh, podcast. And uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about uh, your time in Montreal and what you did there before, before coming to Victoria. Well, I
1: arrived in Montreal uh, with a scholarship to Le Grand Ballet Canadien and took three classes a day for a few months to because I hadn't studied ballet and you have to have ballet so I decided to get it done you know <laughs> and that was a wonderful experience but I preferred taking the men's classes because I liked the athleticism of the men's work and I've I've always had a bigger gymnastic body I've had bigger quads and you know I'm wide and short and so I hated wearing the Pink tights and the black leotard of les Grand Ballet, and so I wore black tights and black leotard and i I know that <laughs> well, I think she 's dead now, but she would call me la fille noire <laughs> and and we don 't want you know And it, there was a lot of conflict about 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 just ah uh, just being expressive, but I remember when Fernando came in to look at how the girls were doing in in les Grand ballets he watched us do our combinations and then he pointed me out and said she's doing that with so much passion but it was and it was the, it was the recognition from very early that you know you just don't fit in le corps de ballet if you're kind of headed towards uh, contemporary life and so I I headed off into the contemporary world and that's where I met um, Groupe de la Nouvelle Air and Groupe de la Place Royale they were working then and that's, that's when I taught that summer school when Jeanette Lorraine and Edward Locke were in it and uh, just the, the contemporary world was, was fired up and, and we began we began, uh, we began doing contemporary works, then I met Constantine Darling there and we started doing a lot of creations Montreal was a wonderful time Les Ballets Jazz, Constantine and I co- co-choreographed a piece for Les Ballets Jazz at that time which was early 70s yeah um I think about Montreal as just a just a wonderful creative city full of full of vibrancy and I'm thrilled to hear that that it's really still really vibrant in the dance world but uh then I had my first son and I moved to Texas because the father of my children's an architect, and we were off looking for this to study with an architect named Bruce Goff who was alive and well and living in Tyler, Texas, which is a town that big and uh, I moved from Montreal to Tyler, Texas and had the biggest cultural shock of my life and uh, from there went up to Oregon and then found myself here in Victoria and I've been here ever since
3: the dance community in Victoria since you came here has really obviously evolved And changed it's changed even in the last 10 years the last 20 years not to mention since 19 late 1970s and it's kind of grown around you and what you've been doing and 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 yet you've kind of remained a, a pillar through that in the community so how has that changed your work your your position here over the years
1: well now I feel like a grandmother I am a grandmother, but now I feel like, you know, when you nurture students, you never know where they're going to go. And then to find that they have gone on and your roots in them or your influence in them is creeping out in their work. I'm always thrilled when I see someone that has studied with me and there's a hint of my work in them. It's always such a great compliment. But I see, I see that, that those those years and years of teaching here and those thousands of people that have come through a school in years and years and years that that they have gone on to just continue that anyone who teaches is just uh, just the the impetus and then you see it going on it is your legacy you see it going on generation after generation after you and and you speak of these people kind of
0: having a pinch of, of maybe your style or your approach is there somebody who had that influence on you do you find uh, when you began in dance and when you were back in Montreal maybe um, was there a teacher or somebody who you really looked up to
1: and and that gave you that drive to continue Um, let me think hard on that before I answer that question my first response is no Um, but I have to say my very first teacher was Paula Ross and Paula knew that I was the wrong size, my hips were too wide, my feet were flat, um, that I had runner's legs, but she nurtured the soloist in me because I didn't fit in group work. <laughs> and I think that is her recognition that, that um, here's, a, here's a gem here, but whenever you put me in a group, there was just oh, That one on the end is really pulling focus And that was me So I th- I would have to say that Paula Really did see that in me But I learned really early That the dance world is very cruel And because I didn't fit The size The look of the dancer I knew that my um, my salvation lay In solo work And so that's something you do alone And that just, that, that just deepened and deepened in me The more success I had with my solos So um, I think I took life as my biggest inspiration mm-hmm. I, I know that all my pieces that mean, are meaningful to me Were very much about something that happened to me Life that I witnessed I was never into the abstract world of dance So um, I would have to say life was my mentor more Mm-hmm. Than a single person
0: and is that is that something that you pass on to your students or people taking workshops with you that that kind of um, kind of t- take what you have and 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 shape it and, and make it into to something that you're you're proud of and um, what are what are
1: your approaches when teaching yourself? I think that I think th- I think yes. I think the answer to that is yes. I've I've had a quote that I've used for years, and it is, um, you don't have to have a dancer's body, only a body that dances. And I've used that in all of my teaching, particularly when I started my company for fat women called Big Dance. I mean, there's a non-dancer body for sure. And, and that was very important to, to them in that work was to say you know, yes, you don't look like dancers, but you are dancers because you are dancing.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, you know, if you don't have, if you've, um, if you've been a bit of a rebel, which I've been, you, um, you, you have to forge your own way and, and, and say you believe in yourself because it feels like, well, who's, if you don't, who's going to? You know, if you're going to dance naked in your mid-40s, on a on a stage in Victoria, you're, you're going to have to be really committed because you're already got saggy boobs and cellulite. You know you're in your 40s, so you're going to have to just be really, really committed. And I think I think what people take from me is just uh, they saw that I wasn't a quitter. I think most of the people mm-hmm. that sing that speak highly of me speak of me as someone who inspired them to work with what they had and don't. Don't stop just because you've got great big breasts, or you've got a big bum, or you've got flat feet, or whatever you've got. Don't let that influence the way you're going to dance. You know, find your truth in dance and go with that.
0: And and when uh, when you got started here in Victoria, did do you find this was a mentality that was hard to bring forth or hard to break? break the public into that that new way of seeing dance and, and the accessibility behind it, whether uh, it's
1: watching or actually participating. Well, the first piece I did when I moved here was called Mother Moon, and it was done seven months pregnant with mm-hmm. my second son. It was a large big paper lantern, a huge white paper lantern, and I did it to Claire de Lune by Debussy, and um, it was just a romantic piece about the full moon and the full belly mm. but man did that set the tongues a-wagging there's a pregnant <laughs> woman dancing and now it's nothing to see pregnant women dancing but we're talking 1979 so yeah. it was it was rebellious I mean I was laying on my stomach I did a back bend pregnant <laughs> <laughs> you know I didn't think of anything like that that that, that, that was an issue at all um, but it set up it set, up, it set the standard, I think, for don't mess with me or don't try to put me in a box. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Here I am dancing pregnant, and they loved the piece, and people still remember that piece, but it was the shocking piece. I mean, one woman stood up and said, What about the baby?
2: <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh,
0: that's funny. <laughs> I know.
2: You've spoken the praises of Montreal, and before we started recording, also Vancouver and the in the dance scenes and the things that are happening there. Uh, And it sounds like circumstances have led you to be here um, and forging this path. Is is that? um, Do you feel a responsibility to to stay in Victoria or to have stayed and to to make sure that this smaller community has this kind of uh, Mm. industry?
1: Well, I have to say that when my sons were early teens, 10 and 12, I said, come on, you guys, let's move to Vancouver, because it was a, this is a small town. And, and they said, absolutely not, that it was too scary, and there were gangs, and that they wanted to be here. And I thought, you know what? I'm here. I'm here. I'm just going to... We just got to make the best of it. But um, do you remember there was Dancing on the Edge in Vancouver? Well... I decided to have bring those people here and call it Dancing on the Edge of the Edge. <laughs> 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 and it was great. Alvin Tolentino came for the first time and, uh, and artists came from Vancouver and we had, it was bring it to here, bring it here. We don't have much here, but bring others here and turn them on to Victoria. And also, I mean, I was very committed to teaching and the school was thriving and there was a lot of people who were getting modern dance where they weren't going to get it anywhere else. So I was, I was stuck, <laughs> but blissfully stuck here. And then dancing on the edge of the edge became romp and became bounce and subsequently now, I mean, Victoria just took off. When Dance Victoria was created and you'll be talking to Stephen, I mean, it just took off and, and now Victoria is a good dance center. It is a good dance centre, and, and that's because of Dance Victoria. Yeah, but no, it, it felt like it's a good place to raise your kids. There's a school that's providing something that no nowhere else can they get. And you know, if I'm going to brag a little bit, <laughs> David Earl came out for 10 summers in a row because he loved the fact that I had a wooden floor, and he loved being on the West Coast. And people just loved taking a summer school with David Earl from Toronto Dance Theatre. You know, it was... People started to come here. So then you don't feel so that you're in a little itty-bitty town. You know, when I, I think very fondly of Victoria, there's every single thing that you could get anywhere in the world. You just have smaller choices. But really, there's designer clothes. There's incredible athleticism. There's incredible musicians. There's a really vibrant theater scene. There's dance. There's an opera. There's a symphony. I mean, there's everything that every city has. And this beautiful setting. So, you know, rather than what it doesn't have, I, I started to say, wow, this city is a great place to live.
2: Yeah, and I, and I think it sounds like that you, you made that commitment to, to, to helping that along, to making that happen for the dance industry here.
1: Yeah, but, you know, realistically, it was also how I was living and how I was supporting my sons. Mm-hmm. You know, it was my bread and butter and then I would do a concert every year about every year and a half I would do a solo concert here at the MAC um, it just there'd be, the pieces would bubble up and then there'd be a concert yeah You mentioned uh,
2: Big Dance earlier, and I'm curious about where the uh, participants of that came from. Are these people that were looking for the opportunity that were already dancing and needed the validation, or was it more people who were too shy to dance before that were suddenly given this opportunity
1: to to do it? You know, Big Dance was... (laughs) It was so innocent, and it became this phenomenon which was not my plan at all. I had just done interpreting paintings in a concert. And the painter's name was Carol Ray. Carol Ray's a large woman. And we had done interpreting her paintings in dance. And at the end of that process, she said to me, you know, I would love to dance, but I would never go and take a dance class with all these skinny people. I'd feel like an idiot. You should start a class for just for big people. So I said, okay, well, that sounds like a good idea. And we put a little ad in the paper and six women climbed up the stairs and said, I'm here for the dance class, Mm -hmm. shy, horrified, terrified. And it began. And it just took off Mm -hmm. because marginalized people, when they find a place to be safe and expressive and accepted, it just takes off in any facet of anyone who's marginalized. And suddenly there was this huge class of large women dancing because they had been given permission to dance. It was very simple It's not magic I mean it's the same as the woman who came up with one leg She had a metal leg for her other leg And she said can I dance here And I said of course you can But you can't scratch my wooden floor So you're going to have to put a piece of some felt On the bottom of that metal leg And that was the only criteria So That's fantastic and, and how does it exist today What is the Well big dance is not happening anymore Because I stopped Okay Yeah Big dance died when I stopped teaching. Hmm. That's a shame. But, you know, I think there was, um, I think there is ebb and flow in all kinds of things. You know, for a while, you saw large people dancing. You saw companies coming from Cuba, and there was, I think it was the Netherlands, they did a piece uh, where they put skinny dancers in big, fat costumes, which I found very offensive because, of course, we were doing it for real. But then then that wave just kind of fell away, and I started to struggle to get students in the class. So, and I would say, where are all the big ladies? It's, it's, it's like anything. It ebbed and flowed. But that's actually not interesting, so don't put that in the interview. <laughs> you know
2: but but i th- i think is what's interesting to me is is the um is the idea that when dance becomes too elitist and people aren't don't feel comfortable participating and 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 i feel like that's growing that divide between the dancer and the human
1: yes but you know that's why you're getting anti dance companies you know the the movement of anti-dance, where you don't have to be technical, and where you can have different body types, and and can-do dance in England, where you're dancing with disabled people, or or um, just, I see, I see that elitism is not getting a lot of support anymore, which is great. I think I think dance needs to be hit upside the head when it gets too elitist, and I think that ebb and flow happens where a bunch of people smack you on the head and and then it disintegrates and we kind of get real again
3: yeah one of the most amazing things i think walking into reino dance studios is that uh the diversity of of the people there and of the levels of the of the body types of the uh the backgrounds of uh the professions of the people that are are there doing classes and and uh and And it is a very unique thing to have a space in a city with with such incredible uh, level of teaching for adults. And as you spoke about briefly earlier, when you started, um, the, the studios were really for children here. And I think that that is the case in a lot of cities. It's hard for adults to find a space to explore movement mm-hmm. um, if they're if they're starting out for the first time in their 40s or or 60s mm-hmm. or you know. And, and and how valuable that is to the dance community to have that sort of diversity, um, and that that's still a pillar here. It still exists here, and uh, and uh, it's a place for people to kind of flock to. I think.
1: I agree, and I'm very, very proud of that, I have to say. And, I, I, and I'm i thrilled that it's continuing on, now that I've given it to Monique Seles to continue it. It's, you know, I called it Linda Reno Dance, and she's now calling it Reno Dance, just to make it a little less me <laughs> and more her, which is a good idea. But yes, when people would go away and they'd move to other cities, they would call or email and say, there's nothing like the studio. And... Uh, You don't realize how unique a thing you've created until you get that kind of feedback. You know, to me, it was obvious that if you're a beginner, it doesn't matter how old you are, it matters that you're a beginner. So you're going to be together as beginners. But if you're 20 or 50, you're still just an adult. So, but you would never put an adult who's 45 and has never danced with someone who's danced their whole life. I mean, you don't do it according to age, you do it according to ability. And that's why the school was so unique that they were but you had to be eighteen, so it was only adults, no teenagers, no kids. It was where adults and I got the so many times a woman would say, you know, I I danced every day of my life till I was fifteen and then I grew these huge breasts and they told me I couldn't dance anymore and so I quit. And now as a woman in my mid thirties, I want to come back to dance. And those were that that story would repeat itself over and over and over. Or or someone would have stopped and had a couple of children and then said, but wait a minute, I love dance just because I've got a family now. I'm not going to be a professional. I'm not going to make my living from dance, but why can't I go and dance? And they would come and take advanced classes and, and dance as seriously as if they had never left the profession. And then we'd perform every year in their concerts, and I think, yes, you're dancing. It is, it, it, it has, I'm extremely proud of the school.
3: What was the uh, process for you in kind of giving that up, having this, having this baby, your school, and and then passing that on to someone else and, and stepping back? Well, in one word,
1: wretched, horrible, <laughs> um, uh, unbelievably hard. Um, I have been in free fall since I let go of the studio. I thought I was completely ready because... I was ready. I I have to say, when I was teaching a floor bar class and I had explained how we're going to do second positions and absolutely your supporting hip is not going to move, we talked about it and then we went to it and this one lady just went wha wha her hip went over. And I walked up and said, you disobedient bitch.
3: <laughs> and,
1: and then I thought, I think that's called teacher burnout. I think... I think you get the prize for teacher burnout. You've got to stop. (laughs) And I, and she said, and I apologize. I said, I brought her flowers to the next class and she said, ah, I've been called worse. And I thought, you know, that's the beauty of my school was that we were able to speak like that to one another. But I realized then, you know, you've been teaching for 48 years. I think, I think you should stop. And one guy said to me, you only get 25 years for murder, you know? And I thought, Yeah, you're right. I've been doing this a long time. (laughs) It's time to stop. Plus, I was now really just doing the admin because I had two wretched injuries, like two big hits. Um, One where my lower back blew out, two, two discs herniated in every direction, and that wrecked my legs. And one where I had a dancer on my back and we fell in such a way that my knee snapped and she landed on my ankle and that broke. So that was a mess. Two really bad injuries where... That was in 2010, and I spent the next four years trying to get myself to walk straight because it was just so wrecked. So I wasn't moving well anymore, and I was doing the administration, and administration's not my thing. You know, administration does not turn my crank at all. So I I said, you know what, it's time. It's time for me to see what else I want to do. Well, if you've been a one-trick pony, which I have, when people say, what have you done in your life? (laughs) <laughs> well, I've only danced, taught it, performed it, and choreographed it. So what else am I going to do? I'm still trying to figure that out. So no, it's been really hard giving it up. I thought I was so ready, and now I'm back teaching floor bar once a week because Monique called and said, you've got to come back and teach floor bar once a week at least. So I have my little one class a week to teach. And I'm, I'm just kind of saying, do I still want to do that? Do I, you know, am my... But I've, um, I sing. I sing in a choir. And I've been really interested in doing vocal movement. Not just where you kind of grunt while you move, but where you actually sing and move. So um, I did that I, when in September when I gave Monique the studio and she took it over for the first time. I went right into a rehearsal process creating a piece with three singers and we, who move. And we created a movement singing piece. And I thought, okay, this is great. I'm going to work on my own stuff now. And now I just want to do projects that come to me when I want to do it on my terms that don't hurt, you know, and that I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to try and stick my leg in the air. That's ridiculous, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, but in terms of one's purpose in life, wow. Free fall. That's all I can say. Free fall. Oh my God. <laughs> Who am I now?
3: Yeah. And so for <laughs> for your choreography and and performance side, you're still you're still in that. You're still working through through vo- voice and through singing. And um, are you still choreographing movement?
1: Yes, but I call it gesturing now. <laughs> I think. I think when you do, like, you know, little things, I feel like you're gesturing. Um, I don't feel like I can be so vain as to call it dancing anymore. I think it is, but, you know, it just feels like I'm not in that technical place now. So I feel like I can't call it dance. I do call it gesturing. (laughs) But, yeah, I think I'm a lifer. I think I I try to step away and say, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get a dog, and I'm going to paint, and I'm going to do other things completely... Um, But um, and I love my dog but I'm not a painter and I think I'm a lifer in dance yeah I think I'm going to have to just give in to the fact that you know when I aside when I broke my leg in two places my first break of my life and I was 61 years old you know I mean really I was not someone plagued by injuries but um, it was rough because I couldn't walk and I was so weak and I was so messed up but I decided to choreograph a piece that my choir was singing for three dancers. So I hired them and, with my cane, told them, I want you to do that and lift your leg there. And I would pick her up and put her there. And it was the first time I'd actually sat outside and not been in it and choreographed it. And it was wonderful. And all the pain in my body left and all the depression of not being able to walk left. And my doc said to me, I will never again... Diminish the fact that if you live in the creative performing arts, you have to do it. It is it is how your mental health happens. It's how you balance your life. So yeah, I need to choreograph and I need to create. Just has to be on my terms.
2: Uh, the way you speak about um, finding finding your way uh, into performance through solo and and just the idea of body pride and individual ways of moving and being, uh, how does that apply to your choreography? I imagine you you have to have this eye where you see your performers very clearly and adapt or, or create work that is appropriate for them. Uh, does that include having a lot of uh, performer involvement,
1: uh, input into the creation of work? I've actually choreographed on myself more than on anyone else. So. With the exception of doing a few group pieces for other companies, um, I'm much more attracted to working on myself. So I'm not going to answer your question perfectly right now, but I think you might be asking, are are you asking how I'm influenced choreographically?
2: I'm asking how your 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 philosophy about about dancing in a very personal way to your body right. how that affects the way that you choreograph on other bodies well
1: i'm going to find that out because up until now i would show them what i want and now with that broken leg and having to teach by describing it in words was such a departure for me and it all it actually um It made me realize that I need to stop Because if I couldn't do it myself I didn't want to do it So now I'm coming full circle to How do you create if it isn't going to be Your body demonstrating it If you're not in it and you're seeing it from your eyes How is that going to be And then I think but choreographers All over the world do that They don't all dance the work A lot of choreographers don't dance at all So That is going to be That is going to be kind of new for me it is. In the piece that I worked on with the three singers where we sang and moved, it was a fantastic experience of of moving while singing and stopping and singing and then creating a movement sequence. And then, I mean, it was a wonderful experience. Um, shared, a shared co-creation. I can see that being easy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, I think uh, personally being coming from a place uh, where... I was kind of told at a very young age that that anything that involved coordination um, and uh, something athletic was kind of off boundaries because I'm actually uh, completely blind from the left eye and I have a prosthetic eye. So I could really relate to that, wanting to rebel against what you're not supposed to do and what you want to do and, and using that kind of as a creative outlet and as a, an expression. So um, this is more of a comment than a question, but um, thank you so much for, for sharing that. And I haven't had the pleasure of being a part of this community here in Victoria, but uh, your work and, and what you've done for this community is, is something that I've definitely heard about and read about and, and um, it's it's really a pleasure to, to be here and to talk about it because it's just so beautiful. And, and whether this company is, is now in the hands of somebody else or not, but that that lives on and it's really really beautiful thing. So thank you.
1: Thank you. And you know what comes to mind as soon as you say that? You need to create a piece where there's only where there's only light on one side of the stage and there's only movement on one side of the stage. And you that one whole half of the stage is completely blank. Oh
0: yeah. That it would be great.
1: so cool. <laughs> Like, show them what your life looks like. When should we start? Yeah. <laughs> that would interest me incredibly, to work mm-hmm. with you and, and, and just start to workshop. How could we, how could we do that? And mm-hmm. what would that look like? And, and get a designer in and start brainstorming. Hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. You have
1: to work with what you've got. And what yeah. you've got is what makes you interesting. Mm-hmm. You know? I think... People say all of a sudden, all the time, or what inf- how do you make dances? I mean, I guess, you know, we always get that question, how do you make dances? And I know for me, it's never been um, an abstract idea, ever. It's been tangibly. I've got one eye. That's what I'm going to, I'm seeing only this side of the world. So what does that look like? And let's do a dance about that
0: yeah it's it's been a huge influence as far as the the movement or wanting to create in this two dimensional way that's that's um well if ever you do get the chance to see the work we're presenting here uh it is it touches on that very slightly more in a not in a where the audience will notice it but but in my creative process definitely something well that,
1: sure mm-hmm. and it's all about what what's going on for you anyway yeah 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 but yeah. anyway, this isn't a bone.
3: <laughs>
1: no, but that's cool. That's
3: very cool. Wow. Yeah, I think as as uh, an artist or creator of, of any kind, the idea of really embracing um, what you, how you see the world, and who you are, and and how you impact the world is something is such a strong kind of. Uh, inspiring message for for anyone who's who's working creatively in their lives and not trying to be someone that you're not or or anything, just being who you are in your headspace mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in the way that you view things. And I think is is such a great uh, thing to kind of understand. We can
1: we can be criticized for that, you know. I have been personally. It's like Rayno dances with her heart on her sleeve that it's too literal it's too much about you know your motherhood or, or I mean well I remember coming out of the studio and there was this black bird it wasn't a crow it was a starling and it had eaten poison and it was dying it when this it was in the throes of dying and it was doing this incredible stuff with its wings and going in circles and 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 spasming and it was just I stood there just enraptured and gathered it up and put it in a box and took it home to try and save it, but it died, and then out of that came the solo Blackbird, of course, because, and Bobby McFerrin was at the height of his, and there's Bobby McFerrin doing Blackbird, and and I just took that beautiful death and said, I'm going to honor you, little bird, and do this solo that is your dance of death. And, okay, so that's dancing with your heart on your sleeve. Well, then I'm going to just keep doing that, because how many times have you gone to a modern dance concert or contemporary concert, have no idea what you're seeing, you're not touched in any way, there's a whole lot of people walking in different directions like zombies, there's like w- weird music and a, and a piece of light here and there, and then the odd gesture that happens now and again, and you think, wow. I mean, I've had to defend modern dance for 48 years now, and it it makes me mad. It always did. And I always loved the fact that people understood what I was doing. I actually loved that. They didn't, they, they got touched, and that's all that mattered to me. You know, because it was about, because I was just old-fashioned and wanted it to be very real to my life. So the dances have always been something that I witnessed or something that happened to me.
3: People can sense that authenticity in viewing the work and that's probably why they connect so strongly with it is that it comes from that place of, so. of reality rather than trying to grasp for something uh, from the outside of right. your own right. outside of your own life.
1: Mind you then you get incredibly brilliant choreographers who are not doing literal work who just can inspire you incredibly but that wasn't me mm-hmm. you know I, I, I just my I'm I'm flat on my stomach going oh my god to those those in- incredibly mental type choreographers, and when you talk to them about their work, they know exactly what they're talking about and what they're trying to do. But it's so conceptualized, and when you look at the work, you think, "Were we? I didn't see any of that." <laughs> you know, because it's so vague. Um, that just wasn't my way. Just it just wasn't my way. I think it's because I'm Italian. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else
2: you'd like to share with us today
1: oh my god how many hours do we have i mean you think about what do you want to say about your life i mean at this point you know right now i'm um i'm struggling with the physical injuries that those two hits have done and and um and i hate living with pain and i'm struggling with it and it's been hard mentally it's been really hard physically because i've um I've had a very, very strong body and never, nothing ever, nothing felled me except when my back blew out and I was taken away in an ambulance. I was not walking, you know, and when, when my leg broke in two places, I was not walking. And um, I've, had to, I've had to wrestle with, uh, what are you going to do when you can't do what you love? You know what? Are, what are you going to do? You, and I've just sort of come to understand that um, you just keep morphing into into the next version of yourself. You just morph into. I mean, I did a piece in sign language because I didn't have to move my legs for that moment of time. You just keep morphing your work to fit what's going on in your life. Yeah, because you don't get to stop. There's just no stopping. Stopping is, I remember Barbara Bouget Kokoro dance in Vancouver. Her doctor said, if you stop, you'll be in a wheelchair. Do not stop. (laughs) And I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Someone said to me, Are you going to die a dancer? And I thought, Yes, yeah. Yeah, I am. I am. Because I think dance is one of those curses that you just don't, uh, you can't say, I won't do it anymore. I think you're stuck with it. If it if you were born a dancer as I was, I think you were stuck with it. I think it I think you were chosen. You know, I remember um I remember when I was driving and it was raining and I was on a little road in Port Angeles and the windshield wipers are going whack, 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 whack and I was looking in the windshield and there were these three couples One was two men, one was two women, and one was a man and a woman. And Elvis Presley was singing I Can't Help Falling in Love With You. And I looked at this and pulled over and watched this whole dance and turned off the car and said, but I don't even like Elvis. But what I was being given was the dance was presented to me from wherever dances come from, you know? The ethers, the inspirations, the people that came before me, whatever. And to me... That's my job. I then had to let, to create that piece exactly as I saw it in the windshield and do it. And it became one of my favorite little pieces. It was a, just this three-minute piece of wise men say, only fools rush in, but I can't help falling in love with you. And there was two men doing it and two women doing it and a man and a woman doing it. And the lights came on up and down on each couple so that you were seeing exactly the same movements, but done it by different bodies. And so that it was saying love looks the same no matter what kind of groupings it is, and I liked that interpretation of Elvis's song more than it just being a heterosexual um, response to a sweet little song. It w- it was more political, it was more p- powerful, and I just think, well, okay, I'm not off the hook yet. The Fat Lady hasn't sung. I'm not off the hook. If the inspirations are still going to come at me, I'm still responsible. To respond to them. So I'm stuck with it. Mm-hmm. Yep.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been uh, sitting here talking to Linda Reno on this lovely afternoon in Victoria, B.C. Thank you so much for uh, talking with us, Linda.
1: It's been a pleasure talking to all three of you. You're gorgeous. <laughs>
0: Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theatre. Check them out at montrealimprov.com.
2: Dirty Feet est produit et animé par Produced and hosted by Allison Burns
0: J.D. Papillon
2: and Stéphanie Robert. You can find out more about our show at nomoreradio.com Follow us on Twitter at DirtyDirtyFeet And find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast
0: Vous pouvez écouter tous nos épisodes sur notre site web ou Vous pouvez vous abonner également sur iTunes and notre podcast. Listen to past episodes on website or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. While you're there, be sure to give us a rating and or leave a
2: comment to help us spread the word. Tune in next week for a whole new show.